Welcome to this week's edition of Tabby Talk with Jay Louder. This is actually part two with Ken Guidros. He wrote a book, Letters to My Son in Prison. If, if you haven't listened to part one, you want to make sure that you listen to part one before you listen to part two today. Ken's got an incredible story. Really, when we started the podcast, we had no idea. Our plans were not to make it a two-part podcast. But Ken, you and I kind of, I feel like there were some things that weren't scripted or planned, of course, but we got off on. I think people really needed to hear. And uh, man, I appreciate you joining me for part two. Absolutely. Yeah, I think we could make it maybe a three or four parter. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Well, we probably could. We probably could. Let me just update our listeners because our podcasts come out every two weeks. And again, I'm, I'm hoping that no one is jumping into part two before part one. But last week, we talked about um, you were in a position, you were a pastor, you were at a church of Christ, things were going great, you had a beautiful wife, three sons, and then the next thing you know, one of your sons, who was a basketball player, began to kind of resist some of that upbringing. And really, where we left off was you had resigned from the church, they'd asked you to stay on for another year of which you had agreed to do. There were some challenges in the church. We didn't really get into that, but I don't think it's relevant to the story. And uh, you stayed on for about a year and uh, after your resignation. And then the situation with your son, I guess, escalated. You had mentioned in part one that your son had gotten on opioids. I'd be curious. I didn't ask you this in part one, Ken. Sometimes students get on opioids because uh, they had some kind of sports injury. I'm assuming that wasn't the case. That was not the case, correct. And it, they, they each started it after, right after getting out of high school. So it was it was more garden variety things before or, or, or in high school and then opioids after. Okay. And so we heard on the last podcast that, again, that's, that's kind of the situation. That eventually after a year, you guys had left. Uh, you were in a crisis, as you said. I remember your words, crisis of parenting and a crisis of faith. Uh, not only were you guys struggling as parents, y'all had done everything you possibly could to raise your kids the right way, taught them the scriptures. You were people of faith, and yet the the all hell has broke loose in your family. And I remember you also mentioning that not only was there the struggle as far as a father and a mother, but also the spiritual struggle. And I think the words that you used were you had a, pul- a spiritual pulse, but barely even that. And so, Ken, why don't you just kind of take off from there? Again, we, we obviously know that your son had begun to experiment with opioids, but, but kind of take off from there. So, yeah, it was it was a dark time. And, and my wife and I continued holding on to the three, our three new favorites, Job, Solomon and David, all three of whom were very honest in the Bible and, and and had their own challenges and their own moments of wondering where God was in a very dark period where everything happens almost literally everything happens that you just did not expect. You expected the opposite and then that happened. And so I, I struggled to even walk into a church, felt, felt it was uh, oftentimes patronizing and just difficult to be there. But I did find a, a place in L.A., in Hollywood, actually, that had a, 
a service that was conducted, the song service was conducted in the dark, both the band and the congregants. So it was a dark auditorium, rope lights on the aisle, but that was it. And that was the only place I could go and, and, and lean into God without feeling, you know, the, the heavy hand of what I, of what I used to be, how I used to be. Nobody could see me. I, I almost couldn't see me. It's kind of how it felt. I saw the lyrics and, and it was, the, it was the only place I could be free. And the music was transcendent. It was, just, it was kind of a Hillsong United ish, but you know, played very tastefully and not over, you know, not loud, not obnoxious, you know, spotlight on the singer that not, not a performance, really a worship. And it was there that, that I was able to get a semblance, and I mean semblance literally, a semblance of faith. And I, I just, I don't know, I just, I was barely, I was hanging on, but it, I just didn't know what to think. Every, everything I had believed was thrown up into the air and, the, you know, and so to, to sing a song about God being my fortress and, you know, my faith, it just, it, it, and then to do it with song, with lyrics that I could see in the darkness, that was, it was in some ways my salvation to, to be able to do that, to, to feel like I had, I don't, I had some faith. I, I, I wasn't lost is how I felt. Wow. Ken, you haven't mentioned anything about your wife. Was your wife also going through this same crisis of faith, uh, also in this dark place as well? We we were thankfully very much on the same page. I mean, uh, regrettably, maybe it would have been nice to have her stronger. But <laughs> no, we we really, it's been our salvation as a couple. We've been married forty one years, you know, and 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 just spiritually, we we both are on the same page. We both were aghast at what we were looking at, both faith-wise and family-wise. So, yeah, she, she was there. Now, interestingly, though, she did not like that worship service. I, I would go down alone. And, boy, you talk about, I mean, Jay, you can relate to this. You've been, your whole Christian life has been the two of you. And now, all of a sudden, you're attending different churches. You talk about feeling like a completely lost guy. Yeah. You know, I was like, oh, if my friends could see me now. But I had to go there. I, it was almost an addiction. I had to go there to just be in the darkness and to be and to sing and to feel connected, you know, for that one hour a week was almost I was almost claustrophobic to get it. And and yet she had to worship other ways. But, but yes, we were very much on the same page. Yeah, and that's okay. What was the time frame of this, Ken? I mean, are we talking, uh, again, our listeners still don't know what's unfolded yet. So I, I want to make sure that I don't jump the gun on this. Is this, are, are you talking about a time frame of this was right after you had left the church and your son is still just your one son is fighting the opioid addiction? Or is this further along in the story that our listeners still don't? know about yeah this is about 10 years down the road so i it's been a darkness not for one year but for almost 10 years so 
Yeah, it was not a pretty picture. This starts occurring about eight years after what I described earlier. So yeah, it's been it's been a real desert in terms of spiritual having a church family, and it wasn't a church family didn't want me. It was I couldn't handle being around something that so reminded me of my own spiritual and parental failures. Even reading the Bible was very hard for me for years because it just reminded me of everything in my life that had not worked out. It was, I mean, that's how dark it was. And, you know, I'm not proud of that, but that that's being honest. So me discovering this dark church was about eight years after what I described and about a year or so before uh, the events that I talk about in this book. Okay. Yeah. And we need to, we'd certainly need to, we need to get into that. So our listeners, I'm sure people are kind of on edge going, okay, but what, what has happened? Because we haven't, we haven't actually re- revealed it yet, but I, I do think there's, there's some real merit. Uh, I, I just, I, I mentioned this last on the last podcast. I appreciated the fact that you hung on and in spite of, and, and I know that there may be some people listening and that go, well, gosh, I can't imagine me ever getting to a place where, um, I don't read the scripture and the distances there between me and God, but be cautious about saying that because, uh, as we talked about last time, it, it's real easy to serve the Lord when things are going well. And when you've done everything you know to do to try to follow God and serve him and the rug is jerked out from underneath you, uh, it can put you in a real tailspin. And of course, you know, we see this and I've mentioned this on podcast in the past, but all the great heroes of the faith all of them, I, I can't think of really one off the top of my head that didn't go through, Ken, a crisis of faith as well. Um, I know I mentioned Jesus' mother last time, but I mean, uh, you look at the disciples and the way they died, and you, you look at all the great heroes, whether it's Moses or whether it's Daniel. I mean, the list goes on and on. And there were these scenarios where things didn't add up and things didn't make sense. And it was difficult to understand why God, whether it was God allowing or God permitting or whether it was their decision or the decision of the enemy, that's just part of following God. And you know, yes. we always like to talk about those parts of the scripture that talk about, you know, heaven and the blessings of following God. But we don't like to talk about other things like where Jesus said, I'm sending you out as a sheep in the midst of wolves where God makes it clear that following him, part of that is taking up your cross and that cross representing being willing to die to self. And so, um, you know, part of agreeing and signing on to become a, a believer is recognizing that, yeah, while there may be certain preachers on TV that make it seem as though it's going to be a, a glory road, there's a lot of adversity and difficulty that, that, that go in it. But so we can move further on ahead, Ken. Uh, your, your oldest son has been uh, experiencing with, uh, exper- excuse me, experimenting with opioids. Uh, you and your wife are in this huge struggle, hurting, doesn't make sense. Uh, you feel like your family is obviously in a very difficult situation. What begins to escalate from there? I mean, things are tough already. I'm sure you're hoping things don't get worse, but we're about to find out they do. Yeah, just to clarify, so my oldest son did not struggle with opioids. He struggled with alcohol, weed, and other things. And he he turned around, you know, he was about seven years in, and he really turned around. And 
ended up marrying a gal and having, you know, starting a family doing great. But it was son number two and three who, who did struggle both with opioids. So it's about 10 years after high school. And at age 27, my middle son named Lucas, who the book is about, is high on heroin. He's working at LA Fitness. He gets off about three in the afternoon. He's driving home and takes an unexpected exit off the freeway onto a country road higher than a kite. He tragically rear ends a cyclist and kills him instantly. The man flies over his car, lands on the pavement, and is dead, is dead probably before he even hit the pavement. So this is the inciting incident, if you will, the, you know, the, the crux around, of course, the event and around the book. And uh, Lucas, is, is, uh, he turns himself in about a day later. He w- wasn't even caught at that time. He fled, which is tragic, adding, adding insult to injury, um, and then turns himself in. We didn't even know about this until he turned himself in. Um, and he goes down to L.A. County Jail is in, and is, is, uh, is now arraigned, and, and that whole process happened. So, yeah, he had struggled with opioids for about 10 years, uh, heroin, even meth for a while, and sometimes lesser oxycodone, you know, and other opioids. Um, and, yeah, that, that's the event that um, really that, that serves as the central point of the book. What is that like, Ken? I mean, I know this is an odd question to ask. I, I can't even fathom what it's like when you do get that phone call, probably from the L.A. County Jail, and you find out that your son, who you've already been brokenhearted about, <coughs> excuse me. Let, me, let me start over, I got a call. <coughs> uh, we can edit this part out, so excuse me. Ken, what is it like when you get this phone call there's already a huge struggle going on in your life. And you get the phone call from your son that he's in the L.A. County Jail because he has killed somebody in an accident. It's, you know, it's, it's of course, a mixture of emotions. I, I was mostly pissed, to be real honest with you, I, at him. Okay, now we've we've struggled and, you know, rehab, detox. I mean, just enormous efforts to try to help you get sober with your life. And then, and then this happened. I was just mad. I I went actually, I I heard about it about six in the morning, the next morning or when he turned himself in. And I, I went to my garage and closed the door. It was dark still. And I just wept and I really wept for the widow that he'd made. And I wept for the man, but I, I'll be honest, I didn't weep for my son. I didn't even pray for my son that morning. I just prayed for the victims because I was so just hurt and, and that, that he had let his life come to this. So it was, it was a moment of even praying for them was hard. How do you pray for a man who your son has just killed? Like, how, what do you say? Honestly, what do you say? Like, oh, Lord, be with him. There's no him to be with. Right. He's dead. Right. right? So you go through all this stuff. And, and so, yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a, one of the darkest moments of my life. And I would imagine equally dark would have been having to notify your wife. Or was she on the phone call? Did she find out the same time that you? No, no, she, yes. 
Yeah, so my youngest son dropped him off at the police station, came to our house, got here about 6.30 in the morning. And then Joyce, my wife, was already awake because she had she just knew in her heart something had happened. And then she called me downstairs. To, and then he, my youngest son told the two of us what happened and all the details. Wow. So do you actually, after this season where you just got alone and you're kind of in this quandary of what do I do? Um, some anger at your son. Do you go to the L.A. County Jail to talk to your son? I mean, what what happens? Well, there, you know, for the first week he's there, I didn't even. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not saying this is right, but I, I had very few feelings for him or thoughts towards him, other than I'm glad you're in there. The options of bail were zero. You know, I mean, when you have a son who struggles like he did for ten years, it. it you as a parent, let me just say it about me. I don't know what other parents do. I was just done. I was at the end of my rope. I I just was done. So, you know, I saw him a week later at the arraignment, bearded, uh, shallow, you know, uh, hollow eyes. You know, it was painful. And, and, and some of my parental empathy and sympathies were aroused when I saw him. But it was it was very dark for the first couple of weeks. Now I did have a moment, uh, a month or so into his incarceration, where I visited him in jail, and and serendipitously there was no one else in the visiting room. So there's there's stools and there's glass, and then there's phones you pick up to visit, and it was just the two of us, which never happens. And he it was now sober. His eyes were clear for the first time in ten years. Imagine seeing your son with clear eyes for the first time in 10 years. That's almost spooky. Gives me goosebumps thinking about it. But it was, he, he was, he was himself. He was the Lucas that I knew as a young man. And he just completely, completely melted down in front of me and just cried. His shoulders heaved, he wailed. I, so loud that I thought the officer would come in. And he just apologized for killing Rod. He actually said the name, killing the word, killing Rod, and making Valerie a widow. He said those words. He apologized to me, and I, I didn't cry. I, I, I want to cry right now, <laughs> thinking about it. But you know, I didn't. I just sat there, and I, I was like, I, I felt very moved, and I felt incredibly well moved, but, but I, I just said, you know, thank you. I'm glad you said that. And, and that was the first ray of light. And, and it wasn't even a ray of light. I did not leave that moment thinking Lucas would change his life. That was still a year in coming, but that was the first moment where a little part of my soul stirred that said, maybe he will change. That was the first unconscious moment of thinking that. Well, and isn't it true, probably, Ken, after I'm sure you had all the broken promises for all the years and all the money and time spent with rehab and detox. I mean, it's kind of the proverbial wife that has the husband that says, I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit drinking and Mm. gets to be a point where she no longer has the capacity to believe him because she has been hurt so many times and he has betrayed the promise. Exactly. Assuming that's a similar place to where you were. Exactly. Was your wife also in that same place or was her sentiments different than yours? 
again, very much mine. Um, our friends, a couple of friends, they didn't judge us, but they were shocked that we weren't going to post bail. And Joyce and I were like, if you think we're posting bail, I mean, you're going to have to do a lobotomy or break into my account because I'm not putting one nickel towards. And again, I, maybe even today, that I guess that sounds hard. I, there's no, Jay, there, this kid's out of control. He's killed a man. I, the only place for him was jail. I'm sorry. It was, in our mind, the only place. So, yes, Joyce was very much on the same page as me. Well, that makes perfect sense to me. I've seen too many times where parents have continued to rescue their kids over and over and over. And they've, well, of course, they were trying to do well, but they did more harm than they did good. And I even think about the prodigal son. I mean, when he left the house and told his dad, I want my inheritance, the father didn't go chasing him and begging him to come home. He had to let his right. go, and so it makes perfect sense to me. Yep. So uh, what what happens from here? I mean, I guess it seems reasonable to assume that he's probably going to go to prison. I, I guess there was a court date set and a, a trial set, and you guys, I mean, you kind of know what's, the, the handwriting's on the wall, is it not? The handwriting's on the wall. Uh, there were so many eyewitnesses and other, you know, uh, uh, traffic cam video. Just, I mean, it was clear he did it. He, you know, it just it, there was no trial. The preliminary, the preliminary hearing resulted in in the judge saying we're not even going to bring this to trial. So he's guilty. He's going to be sentenced. So at the sentencing, he, you know, that was an amazing moment of him apologizing, clear eyed finally, not finally, but it had been clear eyed for months now. But yeah, apologizing to the widow and actually the TV cameras because it was a fairly high profile case. But, you know, the TV cameras got his, it's kind of gross to say, but the snot was actually, because his arms, his hands were were handcuffed behind him in the courtroom, which was weird. But um, So as he's apologizing to the widow, his nose starts running, and it literally is hanging for like a foot down. If you can imagine, you know, it was crazy. And finally, his lawyer just, you know, got a Kleenex and wiped it. But, you know, he just, he just flayed himself. He just poured himself out and saying, you know, I'm really sorry. So yes, he's, you know, we started to see a new Lucas, the son that we knew from years and years ago. And then while he was in LA County, so he's there for about six months, then he goes to prison for for the remainder of his sentence. And he's sentenced to 10 years in prison, by the way. So, so when he's there in um, six months, Ken, are you continuing to go visit him? And are you continuing yes. the progression of changing him? And so it's cultivating a new hope that maybe things will be different? Correct. Again, at L.A. County, I only had hope that there would be hope. I didn't have hope yet. It was just too early. It was still too the, the, the hangover of ten years was still still too troubling to actually have hope. But yes, it was there that I wrote him a letter recounting the scene of David sleeping with Bathsheba and then killing Uriah, then being confronted by Nathan, and, and I wrote it. Really fiction. It was it was historical in the sense that I stuck closely to the text, but it was fictionalized. I added, you know, what it felt like, not just what happened, but what it felt like. And I wrote this thing, and it was it was a long, long piece. 
And yet, you know, I, I did focus on Psalm 51 there, you know, at the very end when David comes to terms with what he's done, that he slept with the girl, impregnated her, and then killed her husband. I mean, come on. That's, you know, that's kind of something Lucas could relate to. And I wrote it, I think, you know, with all the emotion that was there. And I, a, a miraculous thing happened. Lucas opened up to God after reading that letter in a way he had never had. A, he too had killed a man. And B, he saw the elegance and the beauty of David's um, coming to terms with it. And he connected and he wanted to be that guy. He wanted to be David. And it was really the first, he called me the second he got the letter. It was, it was many pages. I'm not sure what I sent him. I think it was like 15 pages. He said he read it and she couldn't put it down. And, and finishes it, he calls me up. He gets, they get a 15-minute call. And he just said, Dad, I got to tell you, that was, that was incredible. And it made me cry. It made me think about my life. It made me think about changing my life. And I, wanna, I, I want to, you know, I want to do what David did, he said. And, and you believe him at this point? Or are you still skeptical? I mean, is my heart totally there? No, because I know the folly of addiction, but I'm starting to see these things. I'm starting. And as he left there and went to prison, I started, I wrote a, a piece on Adam and Eve. I wrote a piece on Daniel, Job, Joseph, Solomon. You know, I, I just kept it up because he was loving it. I was loving it. Because, you know, you, you described earlier, Jay, the, the number of people, Bible writers, who have had crises of faith. And, you know, oftentimes it's, it's not until you really think about the story, and in my case, write the story, that you really realize how dark that time must have been. For Moses' mom, like you mentioned, if you really, really think about it, there's death all over the country. You're now desperately going to try to save your son. Think about that. Just write it in your mind, and you realize how challenging that moment was in her life. If you do that with, with Joseph, with every, you start to, to see a grittiness in the Bible. And this is, what I, this is what happened with me as I'm writing these. It's helping Lucas, but I'll be honest with you, it's really helping me. Because, you know, I mentioned earlier, it's hard for me to even open my Bible. Well, now I've got my Bible open a lot, and I'm writing these things. And it, all of a sudden, I start to see the, the flesh in the Bible and not just the halo. I start to really, this is what David went through. This is how lost he was, that he would have killed this man. And he just, he turns around after 30 days of mourning, and he freaking marries Bathsheba. Are you kidding me? The audacity, the hardness of heart. Like, you don't really think about that. At least I didn't think about it until I wrote it. And then I start to see that, I guess, the feet of clay in the Bible. And it, it just helped me to, to not feel so lost with God to see that. You know, that was one of the reasons I was really looking forward to having you on for a podcast because I did a similar thing when my daughter was in the hospital. I wrote, it was an escape for me. And it was a way that mm. I could deal with my feelings and I could be honest. And 
a little bit different as a full-time evangelist because not being on staff as a pastor, I didn't have to worry about, and honestly, it's not really my personality anyway. I really wasn't worried about what anybody thought. If they were let down because I was angry at God, if they were let down because I wasn't reading my Bible, if they were let down that I wasn't giving the Christian colloquialisms and all that stuff, it didn't matter to me. It was a way for me to escape. And I had no idea at the time that I was writing. I mean, I literally still have people to this day that come up to me and we're talking, this has been, of course, Kaylee still has the disease, but this is several years later, people that still come up to me and say, man, you're Jay. I followed you. I, I, somebody told me this just the other day. And here we are about three years out and said, I, every single day I read everything you posted. So Mm. I, I connect with that. And I understand that because so I think some people thought I was writing. I don't know what reason. I, I know maybe some people thought I was writing for Kaylee or maybe to make some type of a point. I really was writing because it was cathartic for me. I, I assume that these letters must have been very pivotal in your son's life. I mean, they must have really resonated with him to the same degree that the David letter did. They did. They did in both of our lives. It, it revived my faith. It, it, it kindled a, faith, a new faith in him, and it led to more letters, personal letters, to start to talk about our lives. Because when you write somebody a lot, you do run out of things to say. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's like, okay, you can only talk about uh, what's happening for so long. So, yeah, I had just opened up my life, and he's in uh, – there, There's he actually went from jail to a holding area, which is called reception in California. He was there for another six months, if you believe that, just just waiting. So during those six months, I start I up I up the ante and start writing more and more, and he's writing me. We just developed this very unique father son relationship. It's just beautiful. It's, it's spiritual, but it's also I had some work challenges, uh, promotion I was considering. You know, it's just my my siblings. My dad gets uh, he just starts struggling with dementia, so I start traveling down there to be with him. So I have all that to tell him. So lots of stuff starts happening that brings Lucas and I to a level that only letter writing will, where you can say things in a letter. He can even, he can even say things to me that he just would never face to face say, but he'll say them in a letter, apologies, thoughts, questions, etc. So that, yeah, I mean, of course that's the title of the book, right? Letters to my son. And so those letters from him to me and from me to him, I think just, started to take on a life of their own and bring the two of us closer to God and much closer to each other. Were you also going to see him at the same time or was it predominantly just a letter writing? You know, after reception, so for six months, we couldn't see him at all. So that was a, a weird time, but in some ways a, a good time because then we, we leaned into letter writing. But yes, once he got to his full-time prison, so he was sentenced to 10 years, but California has a very aggressive prison reduction program where you can take classes, you can go to church, you can take Bible classes, AA, uh, and to get an associate's degree to whittle your sentence. So he sentenced to 10, he whittled it to three just by doing what the state of California allows you to do. So for for the next two years, he's in his permanent facility, and, it, and it's there that I, uh, that, you know, that we continue the letter writing, we continue growing closer, and, and one thing leads to another. What about your sons? I, I know you'd mentioned that your oldest son, he'd had an alcohol addiction. 
was he still fighting that? I know eventually, didn't your youngest son also, he had an addiction as well? And if so, what happens with them in the process? Are they changed by what happened with him? Have they, did they break their addiction as a result of that or as a result of the correspondence between you and your son? What, what happens there? My oldest son, yes, he, he definitely worked out in his early 20s uh, his own uh, you know, abuse of, of substances, went to college, married a gal. So when this happened, he was married, had a young son. So he had really turned his life around. Uh, my youngest son, though, was still struggling with opioids. He'd gone into the Navy for four years, came back, fell back into the patterns. It was very painful. He was living with us. It was, a, and, and this did not turn him around. You'd think it might, but it didn't. He, it was a very different um addiction my my it was it was more like um depressants as opposed to the other uh whatever the opposite of a, a depressants would be so he was living here just doing nothing with his life but yes he struggled for about another year and then he turned himself around as well so your son that was in prison he he serves 3 years what's the status now tell us where what's going on with him now well, the uh, just I'll tell you that in just a second. So near the end of his three years, about the last year, he goes on a reading binge. He starts reading Dostoevsky and Vonnegut and Steinbeck and Hemingway, just just reading dense books, uh, Count of Monte Cristo, just really, really changing his mind. And C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, and, and starts listening to uh, preachers on TV there that they can get in the prison. So he starts to to really go through a spiritual and an intellectual revival that I've never seen in anybody. I mean, the letters he started writing me were just incredible. So he really, really turned his life around. And we would get together, I would visit him, and we would talk for you know hour and a half, two hours, pacing. We, we kind of created this little uh, pathway in the grass because I'm kind of a pacer. I'm pacing right now. <laughs> but um, he... He just changed his life. He became a new man. Um, so it, it, it was it was glorious. He got out of prison. He joined an a kind of a, a Christian based AA program. Went through that. We baptized him here in our jacuzzi. Um, I don't know several months later, and he he really really changed his life. Went from my least spiritual son to probably my most at this point and it's been it's been several years i don't know five six years seven years since the accident uh seven years so you know he's he married a gal that was part of our old church uh wonderful wonderful gal he's got a son of his own now uh who's uh about one you know and 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 had got a job right away you know working doing great uh, you know so if you took a picture of him today it would be very hard to you know, to believe that he was that guy 10 years ago. If you took a picture of my family today and the way I am with my sons and their wives, you know, and their kids, we, you know, we play pickleball every Sunday afternoon and, you know, meet and, and have these, I mean, almost surreal times together now, you know, you just wouldn't believe it. But, the, but, but it was, it was as dark then as it is right now. 
is what I'll say. I think that may be the best way I can put it. Yeah, I know when you and I spoke before the first podcast, one of the things I mentioned to you, because there's a picture uh, of you and your son, and I told you that. I said, looking at your son's picture, not that there's any template for what a person who has addiction is, but he certainly doesn't fit the template of what you would expect uh, he's, it looks like, as I told you, he looks like a corporate executive of a Fortune 500 company. One of the things we haven't talked about, Ken, and I would just be curious, um, I, I never really discussed this much as far as my writing went on social media, but beyond the difficulty of what we've gone through with my daughter's ailment was the carnage. I mean, thank God we made it, but the, the difficulty that we endured as a marriage as a result of mm. my daughter's sickness. And I, I've, I've got to imagine, Ken, that this must have been extremely difficult on on your marriage as well. Yes. Yeah, it was. I mean, it, it, for the reasons you mentioned, yes. Now, yeah, we were on the same page with Bale and with other things. And, and in general, you, you know, yes, on the same page. But also, it, it was very tense, very tense. There, there were times when I felt like Joyce was was enabling. She felt like I was being too much, too strict, too too removed. And we would bicker over. We would fight. We would argue. We would come back together. We. It was very very. When when you're attending different churches, you that's pretty. You know, you're like, wow, we really. Can we not even be together? for church you know you have those thoughts and and there was and then of course now your kids have left so you're an empty nester there's all those challenges of you know what brought us together both church and family are both gone now so the underpinning of a 35 year marriage at that point was kind of stripped away so now you're looking at at rediscovering and regenerating the next decades or however long God will give you of a marriage. And so we had some very dark moments and we fortunately kept talking, didn't let arguing and didn't let sometimes days of distance passing each other and not saying anything in the house, you know, just distance, real distance. We didn't let those define us nor freak us out too much. Uh, I wanted to stay with Joyce. She wanted to stay with me. We knew that in our gut, and we knew we would have to rediscover a, a, an underpinning for a relationship, which which we have now done. Yeah, I, I kind of chuckled under my breath because it's so typical when you said there was one of you, which, of course, it would be easy to figure out one of you that felt the other one was being too strict and the other one felt that the other one was being too enabling and it just fits the mold of a mom and a dad. I think about different challenges oh, yeah. we've had over the years with kids and I always felt like Missy was too soft and she felt like I was too hard. Ken, it's just such a phenomenal story. I mean, there's so many redemptive qualities to this and mm. and we talked about this earlier. We know that there are other people that are facing situations that don't have the hope, that the darkness, the, uh, as you said, the equal amount of darkness has now been surpassed by a greater amount of light. And I think that is the hope for some people that are listening today. And I think there are other people that are facing situations that for them, it doesn't seem like there's the possibility of it. 
What would you say mm. with all that you've been through? And of course, now it's really easy to say, I say easy. I would assume that you would say as tragic as the accident was, as tragic as the addiction was, that what God has now done in your family, of, of course, you would never at the expense of someone dying, but you're able to see how God has turned this situation around and God has gotten glory from it in spite of the mistakes and the pain and the death and, and everything else. But what do you say to other people? Obviously with you written this book, I I know there's a lot of people that are corresponding with you. There's, you deal with a lot of people who are having parenting challenges and marriage challenges. What is your main takeaway, Ken, from all of this? Is it really, does it go back to what you said in our first podcast? It's just hanging on or, or what is it? I, I, I think even the difficulty of you putting that question together shows you the difficulty of what you're asking, <laughs> right? And I, I wrestle with this in the book. It, it is a quandary. Uh, no, no, never would I glorify something that happened in my family at the expense of a man's death. But I do, Jay, I do believe that the glory is in the hanging on, not cursing God, not shaking your fist, but being humble, accepting the rain, uh, just like everyone else has to accept the rain. And I, I don't think that the glory is in the light that comes because you may not get light. You may die. You may think that there's going to be a great ending and there's not. That's not the glory, in my opinion. And I, I, I could be wrong, but I, I, my take home is not the great ending. No. Because I wasn't guaranteed that. I didn't know that really to the last couple of years. I just didn't. We're, we're in the middle of it. I'm not talking to you past tense here. We're talking just two weeks ago, the talk, even after the talk between me and Lucas, I, I had some concerns and I just called him up. I said, son, we, my, you seem like you're losing some of your, humil- your humility. At least had a man-to-man, Christian-to-Christian talk. That still happens. And so to me, the, the glory is in the hanging on and the, the fidelity with God. And the hope, yes, you hope that the cancer will go away, that the son, the prodigal, will, will return. And of course we're going to hope that, and we pray that. But to me, the glory is in the humility of saying, I don't control the world. I don't run this universe. I, I just don't. And I, I, yes, I, I railed and yes, I had feelings and yes, I had disappointment with you, God. But at the end of the day, I accept what you have allowed in this world. And I don't know, to me, that encourages me to know that no matter what happens in the future, if, if this beautiful picture turns sour some way, I, I don't know. I think I'm a changed man on the inside and that I, I will struggle with God. Of course I will. But I, I think I'll have the humility to hang on. Well, you referenced Job earlier. And in essence, it sounds a little bit harsh. And of course, this is a paraphrase. But in essence, what God said to Job with all of his questions were, in modern day vernacular, who are you to question me? And that's a difficult answer. And again, it it does seem a a little bit harsh, but there is a degree of acceptance there. And 
Can yeah. I be curious if you would agree with this? You've talked so much about just hanging on. And I know when you said that on part one of this podcast, it literally sent chills up and down my spine because I do agree with that. I, I do think that that's the ultimate victory to be able to say, as Peter said, where else would I go? I, I, I don't have mm. plan B. I, I don't have a secondary outlet. I mean, it's you or nothing. I have pushed all the chips across the table. I'm all in, even when I don't like what you do and when I don't understand what you do. But I'd be curious if you would agree with this, Ken. Hanging on doesn't mean that you're hanging on today. And I say that because... I remember many days where I didn't hang on, where I, I I won't repeat the things that I said to God. I won't repeat some of the feelings that I had toward God. And there were days I told God I was done. I, I want nothing to do with you. You are not who I thought you were. You are not who I wanted you to be. But hanging on didn't mean that there were not those days that I jumped off the ship. Hanging on means that ultimately... And it, I may be, I may have jumped off the ship for a week or a month or for three months, but my conviction, and I would be curious if you agree, hanging on doesn't mean that there aren't those days or those hours or those weeks or those seasons where I did turn away from God, but where ultimately I came back. And it, I, it's a great, that's a great point. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I hadn't really thought about that angle. Maybe it's the Peter angle that after denial, there is there can be a turnaround. Even David, look at David. There was a turnaround, and for so many, you, you see that fidelity was not perfection in terms of fidelity, fidelity perfection. It was ultimately that's the word you used, and ultimately you are with God. You're going to circle back. There is none other. So it's a great point, Jay, and I'm so glad you brought it up because you're right. Some people did shake their fist. And maybe even walked, and you say, "Well, okay, what is you know what is that?" No, I I, I don't think until I, until you're dead, <laughs> until you're dead, you know, there's always the chance to circle around. And I I think as long as you keep coming back to God, keep hanging on, maybe the thread is even an invisible thread. Maybe instead of instead of a physical thread, we can just think about about it as some umbilical cord that's invisible that somehow keeps us with God. But you know that's what we hope for, and that's what I think at least I've learned. Well, and that's what I love about God. I, and we referenced this. We talked about the prodigal. I mean, we don't know how long that season was. We you can deduce from the story that it was a pretty lengthy season, you know, because it had to be long enough to where he took his inheritance and he wasted every bit of it. It had to be long enough where he ended up on his knees um, wanting to eat the food from pigs. But when he came back, the father didn't give an I told you so speech. He, he didn't give a you should have known better speech. He took off his robe and put it on his son. He put the signet ring on his finger, mm. killed the fatted calf and and so I, I just want to say to people who are listening today that say, but Ken, Jay, I, I'm not hanging on. I'm hurt. I'm angry. I'm bitter. I, I can't even get out of bed today. I'm fighting depression. I've lost my husband, my wife, my kids, my job, whatever the situation may be. That, no, you may not be hanging on today, but there's two things you need to know. God's still hanging on to you. And that just because you may have jumped off the bus today doesn't mean that you can't get back tomorrow. Mm, good point. 
Yeah, Good I point. That. And I, I so love, Ken, that you said that. You know, I, I have such admiration for you, and your story gives me so much hope. Again, we know every story doesn't have this silver lining. It doesn't always turn out this way. But it's so miraculous and so beautiful when it does. This book is an incredible book. I encourage everyone who listens to this podcast to get a copy of it. I initially, on uh, the first episode, gave the title of the book. I didn't give the subtitle because I didn't want to give too much away. But it's entitled, Letters to My Son in Prison, How a Father and Son Found Forgiveness for an Unforgivable Crime. It came out just a few months ago. Ken, how can people get a copy of the book? It's, it's available everywhere, so Amazon, and et cetera. So you can, uh, is my is my site, which will, you know, but, but certainly you can get it everywhere books are sold. I do a weekly essay as well, how to write on some of these things, um, and, and just about life and faith in general, um, and, and maybe in a non-traditional way, not, not the most... Um, well, traditional way, but, you know, I'm just trying to be real. And and in the book, you know, I think one of the things people seem to love about it is that it is real. <laughs> it is honest. It's it's raw. But it's also redemptive. And I think I think that I, I didn't have a book until there was redemption. Um, and again, the redemption wasn't the great life that I see now. It was the redemption, certainly, of my own soul and of my son's soul. And so, yeah, um, they can get it anywhere books are sold. Well, I would encourage everybody to get a copy of the book. As I said in podcast one, one of our team members who's already finished the book literally told me she cried all the way through. It's just a phenomenal book. Uh, and there's so many avenues. I mean, we turned this into a two podcast series that we had no intention of doing so, but there's so many more angles to cover that we weren't able to. Ken, I just honestly, I appreciate your authenticity, your transparency. Uh, I rejoice in what God has done in your family. Uh, you're an incredibly gifted writer. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. And by the way, for those of you that are trying to figure out how in the world do I spell his last name? I want to go to his website. It's G U I D R O Z Ken good. Good Ken. Thanks again. I yes. appreciate you being on the podcast. Many blessings on you and your family. Thank you very much. It's been a very stimulating conversation, really the most I've had since the book came out. So thank you for, uh, for exploring all those different areas. Thank you, Ken. 